The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. The Life-Saving Bombers. It's 2008, and a McDonnell Douglas DC-10 is flying over Southern California. The DC-10 was the world's first three-engined wide-body airliner, with two of its big General Electric CF-6s slung in pods under the giant wings, and a third, looking a little out of place, wedged into the base of its fin, the vertical stabiliser. This massive airliner was designed to convey some 300 passengers around the world in comfort and safety. Its first-class section would have been quiet and refined, with big, comfortable recliners for the passengers who could watch the planet drift along beneath them from 35,000 feet whilst they sipped on their champagne cocktails. Today, this wide-body airliner was down around 200 feet and doing a mere 165 knots but not as you might expect on the final approach to Los Angeles International Airport at the end of another long trans-Pacific flight from Tokyo, nor were there any seats on board for the passengers. The aircraft was nowhere near an airport and doing a completely different job. Instead of a cargo of bored businessmen and excited holidaymakers, this aged aircraft, it was 31 years old, was carrying 12,000 gallons, that 45,000 litres of bright red liquid in a huge tank attached to the centre of the fuselage. A short while before, the big airliner had been on the ground with water hoses attached and a massive weight of fire retardant was being loaded in just 20 minutes. Now they were chasing a tiny King Air around a mile away into a smoke-filled valley near Tehachapi, about 100 miles north of Los Angeles. Their usual lead plane had departed to refuel, so they joined up with the backup aircraft. The little King Air was difficult to keep in sight, as it buzzed through the smoke billowing from the fires below, leading them deeper into an inferno of burning wood. The temperatures on the ground were unimaginable. Wood smoulders at 380 degrees centigrade, that's 720 degrees Fahrenheit, and will ignite at 590 degrees centigrade, 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit but an established wildfire has a wave of heat that precedes it, running at 800 degrees centigrade, 1,470 Fahrenheit. The volume of turbulent, fast-rising air was a big problem for the spotter plane that led the massive water bomber in. But for the airliner, with its weight and momentum, it wasn't expected to be too rough. Inside the DC-10's cockpit, the crew of three were on their third run of the day over the wildfire that would, by the end, have consumed 12,400 acres of forest. Their previous drops had successfully damped down several edges of the blaze, but parts were still out of control. Through the windshield, they could see a wall of smoke 
rising up against the bright blue Californian sky. They were aiming for a ridge which was off on their left-hand side, along which they would paint a line, a red streak with a cascading stream of retardant liquid. Fire retardant is mainly water, but mixed in are phosphates and sulphate salts, which prevent combustion of the cellulose that makes up the organic plant material, and also acts as a fertiliser to encourage new growth once the fire has passed. To stop the water-salt mix from atomizing or evaporating quickly, a clay known as Fuller's Earth, commonly found in beauty products, paint, plaster, adhesives and pharmaceuticals, is mixed in along with guar gum, a thickening agent. The colour comes from iron oxide, which has the advantage of marking where recent drops are, but after a few days in the sun it will fade to an earthy shade of brown. To top it all off are a few trade secret additives, and some corrosion inhibitors and flow conditioners. The life of a wildfire has various stages, and the use of aerial firefighting aircraft is often one of the final resources to be bought in, as hopefully other methods will have worked before resorting to this expensive strategy. One of the most important factors in dealing with wildfires is how quickly the smoke can be spotted. In the past, the US Forest Service had 10,000 lookouts in which lonely observers would gaze across the treetops for days on end, looking for the telltale wisps of smoke rising through the canopy of trees. Nowadays, only a few hundred remain, their job being done by infrared cameras, drones, aircraft and satellites. It was always a solitary job, sitting out in the wild, the target of marauding bears, storms and lightning. Strikes are common on those high towers, so the observers sit on wooden stools with big glass insulators on the legs. Some countries attack the first signs of smoke with water bombers, but an aerial attack can't entirely put out a fire. That needs firefighters on the ground. In the US, a rapid response team is dispatched, fully kitted out with firefighting gear and water-carrying vehicles. If the location is a little more remote, then a plane or a small helicopter will be dispatched. This is usually just to check it out and give a rough estimate of how big the fire is, but in some cases, they'll carry smoke jumpers. There are nine such teams in the US, but they are also established in Russia and Canada. After parachuting in, they're supplied by drops of food, water and firefighting tools, making them self-sufficient for at least 48 hours. The initial responders use both dry and wet firefighting techniques. The dry method involves creating boundaries around the fire and letting it burn itself out. Either way, they try to contain it as soon as possible hopefully during this initial attack, but if it can't be dealt within the first hour or so, then they move on to the next phase, the extended attack. For this, a lot more resources are required. The more time a wildfire has to burn, the bigger it gets and the more difficult it becomes to control. As soon as the fire passes the first response phase, 
an incident control team is assembled which requires a coordination and control centre to deal with the wider strategy. If the fire is close to a town, then they'll throw everything at it. Initially just vehicles and firefighters, but that will quickly escalate to fire trucks and then much larger tankers. They use a lot of machinery, like bulldozers, to clear vegetation and create boundaries. The tactics they use depends on the type of terrain. Attacking a grass fire differs dramatically from the methods used to fight a pine fire or a tall forest fire. But generally speaking, it's a two-phased operation made up of direct and indirect attacks. The direct attack is aimed at the flanks of the fire to narrow the front. This is often done with water, fire beaters, or by digging earth boundaries parallel to the flames. The work usually starts from the areas that have already been burnt, because these are unlikely to catch fire again. If the fire is too intense, and it's not safe to send people and fire trucks in, then indirect attacks are made. This means positioning crews away from the fire, burning down vegetation ahead of the flames and attacking it with aircraft. The aircraft drop fire retardant and water, but if the smoke gets too bad and visibility drops, airborne attacks will have to cease. If that occurs, it might be time to work with the police and the army to try and evacuate people and close roads. If it's too late for them to leave, then they'll have to stay and defend themselves. That's when it's actually safer for people to prepare their houses and stay inside. In a worst-case scenario, there might be hundreds of people on the ground, multiple different agencies involved in several aircraft in the skies, as it was when our DC-10 was turning in to line up for its drop over a Kern County ridge in July 2008. The attack pattern that the King Air and the following tanker made was similar to a big circuit. The DC-10 crew had been briefed to cross the ridge line and drop at 7,700 feet on a pressure setting of 29.96 inches on a heading of 095 degrees. The tanker was about a mile behind the lead aircraft and they advised that they were descending down to the attack altitude. The King Air pilot advised that there wasn't any turbulence and he gave a short description of the drop area and the start point, and then he looked behind to watch the DC-10 approach the ridge. Lead aircraft are used to assist tankers in the approach profile to the drop site. The pilots are provided with more extensive training in low-level flight and fire management, and they generally fly a profile run whilst the tanker orbits and keeps constant view of the lead aircraft. The tanker then joins the lead aircraft and flies an identical profile whilst completing the retardant drop. The DC-10 captain turned his aircraft left to line up, reaching 35 degrees of bank, following the track of the King Air in front. He had been listening to the commentary of his crew and the lead aircraft. 12 miles, 180 knots, 7 miles, 500 feet, 300 feet, but he had allowed the tanker to drop a little below the height of the King Air in front. He's banking left, but hits what he thinks is turbulence, 
and his aircraft drops down amongst the treetops, which are suddenly up all around the windshield. His reaction is immediate. He pulls back hard and piles the power on, but it's too late. The sound and thuds of their wings impacting the trees is obvious. There's a sharp intake of breath, but then they're through and climbing away. The flight engineer is up out of his seat to confirm they have damage to the left aileron, slats and flaps. They climb and then dump the retardant before limping back to their base. The first tree they hit was 45 feet high at a base elevation of 7,786 feet, and they ploughed through 12 more before climbing away. There was extensive damage done to the aircraft, but the crew had survived. Not so for everyone doing this dangerous job. After some prominent air tanker crashes in 2002, a federal panel was convened that dubbed the safety record for air tankers as abysmal. 136 crew had been killed doing their job since the 1950s, often because the aircraft they were using were old, usually ex-military machines that were close to the end of their lives and not really suitable for the rigours of low flying. The concept of aerial water bombing fires stretches back to Frederick Karl von Koenig Worthausen's observations of a blaze whilst overflying California in 1929 during his round-the-world flight. He was en route from San Francisco to Los Angeles when he saw a large bushfire which apparently prompted him to envision aerial firefighting using flame-retardant chemicals as part of the future for aviation. Wildfires have been a part of a natural cycle in our environment for as long as there have been plants around to burn. Post-fire charcoal sediments have been found and aged to the Silurian period, 419 million years ago. They've been such a regular occurrence that species of plants have evolved to rely on fire for their growth and reproduction. Before mankind came on the scene, lightning strikes were the source of ignition, although some large birds, such as the black kites of Australia, have been known to pick up burning brands and drop them in a new area so that they can catch the prey flushed out by the fire that they started. Early man managed their environment and used fire to generate new growth, but modern man is by far the most common cause of the wildfires that have plagued us in recent history, whether by arson, accident, or through man-made infrastructure. Fires caused by downed electricity cables have led to some of the most damaging wildfires ever recorded. The California Campfire of 2018 was the most destructive wildfire in the world. Although it cost 85 people their lives, it was only the 13th most deadly worldwide However, it was estimated that the power company, responsible for the poor maintenance of their lines, had liability of $30 billion, 
they filed for bankruptcy. Early attempts to extinguish fires from the air proved difficult. In 1930, the U.S. Forest Service used a, an old Ford trimotor to drop a beer keg full of water over a fire, but it wasn't until the post-World War II era that the surplus of military aircraft made it feasible to experiment cheaply with the concept of aerial firefighting. The development of crop dusters went hand-in-hand hand with water bombers, but it was quickly discovered that the water would rapidly evaporate, often before it even reached the ground. Small containers of water that would break on impact with the ground were tried, but eventually two men, Joe Eli of the Forest Service and Floyd Nolter, an agricultural pilot, found that their modified steermen worked well if they sprayed a slurry of water and sodium-calcium borate. From there, the inventory of firefighting aircraft grew until there are now a plethora of vehicles available. Almost any utility or transport helicopter can be converted to carry a specialised firefighting bucket, which it fills from a local supply and can deliver with great accuracy. Fixed-wing aircraft that are commonly used vary from the light air tractor through the medium-sized C-130 Hercules and PBY Catalina to the heavy DC-10 and Aleutian IL-76. There have even been a few Boeing 747 supertankers in service, but the last one was retired in 2021. Almost all these aircraft have been converted into aerial tankers, but there's at least one purpose-built aircraft, the Canadair CL415 Super Scooper. This medium-sized amphibious flying boat can dip into almost any reasonably sized body of water in flight to scoop up and refill its water tanks in seconds, allowing it to make repeated passes over a wildfire without having to return to an airfield to refill its tanks. As such, it's become a very popular choice for many countries, particularly Canada, France, Greece, Italy, Morocco, Spain and Turkey. Originally built by Canadair, it's now produced by Viking Air. Perhaps the ultimate water bomber, however, was the enormous Martin Mars flying boat. It could scoop 30 tonnes of water in only 22 seconds, but although four were converted to aerial tanker duties, only two remain, and sadly none are currently out there fighting fires. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you enjoy Plane Tales, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.